Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I have tried uh, with this exposition of 1 Corinthians to be uh, nothing more than a, an expositor of the text. And in these passages, the latter half of 1 Corinthians, uh, really all of 1 Corinthians, that are just so practical. They just really, it's not complicated doctrine. It's not, uh, it's not overtly technical truths. It's very practical directives that impact our day-to-day lives as believers. And I've tried to just bring them out and not really take too much of a deep dive in them, as it were, but to just set them before you and just look at them and consider them and meditate upon them. And in so doing, I'm not in any rush to finish 1 Corinthians. Uh, And as I was in my study this week, preparing for 1 Corinthians uh, 10, I said last week that I would be preaching part one of a part two message, and I believe it'll probably take me uh, another Sunday after today to get through this section here in 1 Corinthians 10 in the first 11 verses, because it's just so rich, and it's just so powerful. And it's so powerful because it's so simple. The reason why holiness is so complicated and so hard is because it's so simple. It's simply just read the Bible and do what it says. Look at Jesus and be like him. How hard is that? Well, in one sense, it's not hard at all. But in another sense, it's not only hard, it's absolutely impossible. And man's flesh, our flesh... We would much rather God give us some really elaborate 12-step plan with a bunch of hoops and obstacles to jump through because we want to uh, say that we have done something and we have accomplished something. But yet God says, no, no, there's nothing for you to accomplish. There's nothing for you to achieve. Just simply read my word and do it. And only by the power of the Spirit will you be able to do that. And so as we look at these practical directives that come to us in the Word of God, these very basic concepts and principles that affect just our day-to-day lives, on one hand, they're very simple. God is not in these verses telling you to go out and write a doctoral dissertation on infralapsarianism. He's not telling you to do that. But on the other hand, you must not just read this at a very basic level and fail and fail to apply it consistently and thoroughly to your heart and life. So let me read for you. I'm going to read verses. I guess I'll just read verses 1 through 11 so we can get the whole context, but we're certainly not going to get through the end of it. Last week we made it all the way through verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, these are the words of God. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all of these things happened unto them for in samples. They are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able but will with the temptation make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. 
That's the literary uh, section here in 1 Corinthians. It goes all the way down through verse 13. And uh, Paul is dealing with some very practical issues in the Corinthian church. None of the issues he's dealing with are new. It's things he's already confronted them about. And much of good biblical preaching is not tickling our minds with new doctrines that we've never heard, but it's reminding us of things that we so quickly forget. The Scottish preacher of the 1800s, Robert Murray McShane, some of you know who he is because you've maybe read the McShane reading plan. McShane only lived to be 29, and he was known as one of the most holy and sanctified Christian ministers of his day. Holiness was his chief quest. It was his highest priority. Nothing was more important, not his preaching ability, not his theological knowledge, not his ministerial capacity. For Murray McShane, nothing was more important to him than his own personal holiness before God. It was McShane who said, It is not great talents God blesses so much as a great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And McShane frequently said of himself, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Well, as we surveyed the state of the church today, it is blatantly obvious that this sort of piety, this sort of zeal to be like Christ, is nearly extinct among the majority of those who profess to be Christians. In fact, those who do emphasize holiness and practical piety in the life of the believer and then want to apply that holiness to all areas of life are quickly labeled as a legalist or as an extremist or as a radical Christian. And many are deceived by a false gospel that tells them that they can be Christians and remain in their sins. But the truth of the Word of God, listen to me very carefully, is that you cannot live like hell and have the hope of heaven. And there's two types of Christians, or should I say two types of people, that desperately need to hear this message. Number one are false converts. Those who profess to be Christians, but do not truly know the Lord Jesus Christ. There is perhaps nowhere on the planet with a higher concentration of this group of people than right here in the Bible Belt. These people are those who profess salvation with their mouth, but profess damnation with the way they live their lives. These are people who, if you ask them, will tell you they love Jesus, and will tell you that they are saved, and will tell you that they know that they know, and they might even attend a little church here and there, But when you examine their lives, you will find that they are engrossed in all sorts of wickedness. They are living in habitual and unrepentant sins. And they bear absolutely no fruit that testifies that they are a child of God. And I want to say this as clearly as I know how. In in 2023, we, we can't afford to pull any punches. If you are living in a known habitual and unrepentant sin and there is no remorse in your heart and there is no conviction in your soul and there is no desire to conform to Christ, then you have absolutely no reason to think that you're a Christian. It doesn't matter what works you want to use to soothe your conscience and tell yourself things like, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or at least I do this, or at least I do that, or at least I don't do that. If sin can live in your heart uncontested, then make, uh, make sure that you understand in your mind that the Holy Spirit does not. Now, I mentioned this first group so I can get it out of the way. This group of false converts... Uh, Because while I do think that they are most prevalent in society, I don't believe they're most prevalent in our church. Uh, That that could be. uh, That that could exist in this church. And if it does, I pray that you are here and that you are hearing the gospel and that you're being made aware of your deception. But there's a second group that needs to hear this message. uh, This message that you cannot 
live like hell and have the hope of heaven. And, and that group are made up of true Christians who rob themselves of an ultimate joy in Christ and a deeper communion with God because they tolerate besetting sins in their lives and put little effort into striving after holiness. They're saved. They know the Lord. They they are going to heaven when they die. But they put very little effort into striving after holiness. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Imagine taking a vacation to the most beautiful beach in the world. The water is warm, the breeze is blowing, the sun is shining, no one else is there, you've got this beach all to yourself, and you decide you're going to go for a swim. But you decide to go swimming in a three-piece suit with a thick leather jacket, a motorcycle helmet, and steel-toed platform boots. And you wade out into the ocean, and the water gets deeper, and the water begins to come up over your head. But instead of swimming, you're frustrated. You're having no fun. Because it's all you can do to keep your head above the water and not drown. Here you are on this beautiful beach and you're struggling and you're frustrated and you're not happy, you're miserable and you're not enjoying the gift of this beach. Eventually you just give up and you go back to shore and you sit there angry and confused and you're thinking, why didn't I enjoy this beautiful beach? Why am I not happy? I have this big ocean all to myself and I couldn't even enjoy swimming in it. And I'm afraid that's how some of you are trying to live the Christian life. You want to be a Christian and you want to follow Jesus but you want to bring all of your worldliness and all of your sins and all of your old, stinking, bad habits with you and you're just like the man that tried to go swimming in a three-piece suit, leather jacket, motorcycle helmet, and steel-toed platform boots. You can't enjoy all that God has for you. And just like the guy on the beach, you sit there frustrating and you're wondering, why don't I get much joy out of being a Christian? I'm looking around at other people, other believers who seem to just be enjoying their Christian life. They come to church and they just exude happiness. And I want some of that in my life. And they talk about the things of God and it thrills their souls. But me, it's all I can do to just force myself to come here. And I thought carnal thoughts before I came. Then I'm going to think carnal thoughts when I leave. And I don't have any fulfillment or any satisfaction. Well, could it be that you're trying to live the Christian life, but you're wearing garments and you're bringing sins along with you that are weighing you down? and keeping you from being able to enjoy the fullness of joy in God. Let me apply this very pointedly and very practically. If you spend more time in front of a video game or in front of a Netflix TV series than you do in front of an open Bible, don't be surprised when scripture reading is unfulfilling and boring and you struggle to make it a daily part of your life. If you can reply to every text and every Snapchat and every Instagram message, but you can't give God five minutes of communion, there's no wonder that you don't find much satisfaction in your prayer life. If you stay up till 2 a.m. on Saturday night goofing around and you sleep in on Sunday and you rush out the door and you barely make it into church, having no time to read the word, no time to pray, no time to prepare your heart, don't be shocked when the worship service was unfulfilling. And then you you do these things, and then you sit there, and you say, well, God, what's wrong? Why am I not enjoying you? I hear all this talk about joy and pleasures at your right hand. 
And yet there are a myriad of Christians who live the Christian life in exactly this way and then wonder why they're so frustrated. You say, how come I don't have a thriving, vigorous relationship with the Lord like other Christians around me do? You, you may even wonder, where is the reality and the power of God in my life? And God says, I'm in the Bible that you don't read. I'm in the prayer closet that you haven't visited in two weeks. I'm in the worship service that you don't prepare yourself for. This is the problem in so much of the church today. And perhaps this is your problem. And if so, then I want you to see that you need Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. Don't just read these these lists, there's so many lists of things not to do in the Bible. <laughs> lists of sin, not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And we read these lists, and here's what our, our, here's what our works righteousness flesh does with lists like that. We look at a list and we say, ah, oh, yes, something for me to do and accomplish. Aha! And if I can do it and I accomplish it, I'll feel good about myself. Do you know why God puts those lists in the Bible? You know why God says, don't do that? Because what God wants is for you to enjoy Him. And for you to find your satisfaction and your fullness and your joy in Him. And the things He says not to do are things that keep you from Him. This was Israel's problem. Remember last week? What did God want from them? He wanted them to be his own peculiar nation. His own purchased possession. And so what did he do? He led them out of Egypt. He, he brought them through the Red Sea. He fed them in the wilderness. He gave them water in the desert. So that they could know the God of heaven has chosen us and has sought us out and is desiring a relationship with us. Yet they were absolutely miserable in the wilderness. They hated it. They said they did. Why? Why did they hate it? Uh, doesn't that sound pretty wonderful to you? God singles you out and makes you his own possession and, and draws you out and takes care of all of your needs and communes with you. How could anybody hate that? They hated it because they wanted to be God's chosen people, but they wanted to keep living the way they did back in Egypt. When God takes you out of Egypt, you don't get to take Egypt with you. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 7 through 11, Paul is going to show us how they lived and what that looked like and the awful fate that they experienced. And he's going to show us that so that we don't live the way they lived. He's going to highlight several sins that they committed. Sins they committed as God's people. As Christians. It's proper to say that. Sins that robbed them of the joy they could have experienced in the Lord if they had pursued holiness and stayed faithful to Jehovah. Before we jump into this text, there's one other question that, that's just begging to be asked. I heard John MacArthur give some advice on... This is totally a digression, but it'll help you. I heard him give some advice on sermon prep, and somebody asked him, how do you formulate a sermon? And he said, he said this is what I do. He said, I, I look at the text, and I see what the text says, and then I ask questions about it, and I just keep writing my sermon until I've answered all the questions. And so as I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 10... There's a question coming to my mind. Maybe it's come to your mind. Why did they do that? Why did the Israelites live like that? Why do they seemingly put forth no effort to be holy? Make it personal. Why do you live the way you live? Why do you commit the same sins that you know are sins, that you know are a problem in your life, that you know bring you misery and unhappiness that you know keep you from the joy in the Lord, yet you, you keep doing them. Why? Why do you, as a Christian, tolerate so much sin and worldliness in your life? I'll tell you what the answer is not. The answer is not because you're just so weak. 
you look at other Christians, you say, well, if God sanctified me the way he sanctified brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, then, then I'd be as holy as they are. Christians who live holy lives don't do so because of how strong they are. Secondly, it's not because God hasn't given you all of the grace that you need to be holy. He's given you all the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. You can do all things through him who strengthens you, and that includes pursuing holiness. The reason why you allow sin to remain in your life is because you really have no idea just how much joy there is to be found in Christ. It's kind of like the beach analogy. It looks good in the commercial. That's why you go there. But how much better does it look when you actually get there? You keep sin in your life. You tolerate worldliness in your life because it brings you pleasure. You enjoy it. But what you don't realize is that the fleeting pleasure of sin cannot be compared to the immense and eternal pleasure that is offered in Christ alone. And if we could all get that through our heads, that the joy of the Lord is so surpassingly greater than anything sin could ever think to offer us, we'd never sin again. I don't quote him often, but I like what he says here. C.S. Lewis once said, I think he said this in Weight of Glory. He said, quote, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. You keep these sins in your life because you are far too easily pleased. You allow yourself to be pleased by stupid, worthless sins when you should settle for nothing less than the pleasure of knowing and relishing and glorifying God. The Bible says in Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I ask you this morning, do you know that? Not, do you know the Bible verse? But do you know it? Have you experienced it? Do you know the reality of this truth? Once you begin to taste of the pleasure that God gives, the pleasure of sin will taste like poison on your tongue and its dominion in your life will be broken. Now that I'm done with my introduction, let's look at our text. 1 Corinthians 10. Our text highlights the lives of people that didn't learn this lesson. And if you don't learn this lesson, you will die in the wilderness. They sinned against God because they were clueless of the joy he was leading them to in the promised land. They never found joy. They died in the wilderness. And I don't want that for any of you. I don't want to see any of you die in the wilderness of worldliness and carnality and sensuality and never experience the fullness of joy that is in the presence of the Lord. So we pick up in verse 7 where we left off. And I have one outline for this whole literary unit. And we looked last week at the spiritual resemblance and the sinful reality and the stated reason and Today, I believe we're probably going to just get through one point, and that is the specific references. The specific references. Verses 7 through 10, Paul cites four specific cases of sin that were committed by the Israelites in the Old Testament to the intent that the Corinthians would not fall into the same sins. The sins mentioned, I'm going to give them to you. Idolatry, Number one. Number two, sexual immorality. Number three, tempting Christ. Number four, complaining. Before we look at each one of these individually, 
Why did Paul specifically highlight these four sins? Why these? Number one, because these sins were very prevalent in the Corinthian church. And they're just as prevalent in the church today. Number two, because they are sins that bring the most pain, destruction, and loss of joy upon the people of God. And thirdly, if you remember the context of this whole section, because all four of these sins often originate with subtle abuses of Christian liberty. So let's look at them. I don't have any ambition that we'll make it past the first two. But that's okay. We're not in a race. Number one, the first sin found in verse seven is the sin of idolatry. Notice what Paul says there in verse seven. He says, neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. How did the Israelites commit idolatry? As it is written, and in and, and each In each sin, Paul quotes the text. Paul's use of the Old Testament is just a study in and of itself. It's a fascinating study. He says, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is a direct quote from Exodus 32 and verse 6. Does anybody remember what happened in Exodus 32? Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's receiving the law from God himself and the rest of the nation of Israel was down at the bottom of the mountain creating a false god. And God told Moses, he says, Moses, you need to go down to the bottom of the mountain because your people whom you have brought have corrupted. I found that very interesting. It's kind of like parents, you know how this is. When your child misbehaves and you say to your spouse, look what your son did today. God said, they're your people, Moses. And they're down at the bottom of the mountain committing idolatry. So Moses comes down from the mountain and he confronts Aaron, the high priest. And Aaron tells the most stupid lie that's ever been told. Moses comes down and he sees this molten calf that Israel's worshiping. And he says to Aaron, where did this come from? I I was was gone for 10 minutes and, and you created this false god. And Aaron tells a dumb lie. Aaron says, well, the people wanted me to make some gods. So I, I threw their earrings in the fire and somehow this calf just came out. And if you read Exodus 32, you see that Aaron fashioned it with tools and and made it into the mold of a calf. Which, by the way, was one of the gods of Egypt. A bronze calf. The end result of this incident was that 3,000 Israelites died. 3,000 died. And that was only by the mercy of God Because what did God tell Moses? Before Moses even went down from the mountain, he said, Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to make a nation from you. And Moses interceded for them. And so God didn't wipe out Israel. And in verse 6 of Exodus 32, the Bible says that they sat down to eat and drink. That is, they had a sacrificial feast before this molten calf. And they rose up to play. There's two, there's two interpretations of that rose up to play. I think there's probably truth in both of them. They danced and they praised before this molten God. They, they rose up and they worshipped. But some commentators suggest that the term rose up to play is a euphemism for sexual acts that were often done in pagan worship. One of the things we see in 1 Corinthians 10 and all throughout the Bible is the intimate relationship between idolatry and sexual immorality. Now why does Paul bring up this event and why does he quote verse 6? Because there were members of the Corinthian church 
who were not only eating sacrificed meats. Remember, the problem is twofold. It's not just about the meat. There were also members of the church that were visiting the pagan temples and participating in the pagan feasts. The chief temple in Corinth, I've said before in this series, was devoted to the Greek goddess of love and beauty, Aphrodite. And part of the worship of Aphrodite involved all sorts of gross sexual acts. And some of the Corinthians, members of the Corinthian church, even went so far as to participate in the worship of Aphrodite and to engage in the immorality that was involved with the worship of Aphrodite. On Sunday, they were members of the church and they worshiped Jesus. But on Monday, they were pagans who committed idolatry. Paul said, one moment, you're you're God's people and he's leading you out of the the wilderness and Moses is going to the mountain to receive the law and the next minute, you're worshiping a molten calf. And we read something like this and we think, wow, that's horrible. Now let's close in prayer. Because this doesn't apply to us. I mean, none of you that I know of have bowed down or danced in front of a golden statue this week. So does that mean that we don't need this exhortation against idolatry? Well, let's ask a very fundamental question. What is an idol? What is an idol? An idol is anything you love, fear, serve more than God or as though it were God for the pleasure that that idol gives you. You do not have to physically go to a pagan temple to commit the sin of idolatry. And if you think you do, you're a Pharisee. You can sit in this church service at this very moment and commit the sin of idolatry in your heart. Calvin said that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Idolorum fabricum. Idol factories. Your job can be an idol. Your money can be an idol. Physical possessions can be an idol. Your social status can be an idol. Mm -hmm. A car can be an idol. Your spouse can be an idol. Things that are not evil or wicked in and of themselves can become idols in your heart and life. Now for you Bible students... Do you remember what Aaron told Israel in Exodus 32 in verse 4 when he pulled the molded calf out of the fire? He didn't say to them, here is one of our gods that we worshipped in Egypt coming to the wilderness with us. Aaron said to them, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Israel. Egypt. Aaron told the Israelites that Jehovah was the molted calf. One of the most worshipped, adored idols in America today is an idol called Jesus Christ. It is a false god that men and women design after their own likings and they call it Jesus. But make no mistake about it, it is not the Jesus of the Bible. It is a Jesus that doesn't care about your holiness. It is a Jesus that is okay with all of your sins. It is a Jesus that only exists to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. It is a Jesus that never rebukes you or repudes you or exhorts you. It is a Jesus that soothes your guilty conscience and makes you think you're religious while you're on your way to hell. It is a Jesus that cannot save you. It is not enough to say, I worship Jesus and I love Jesus. Which Jesus? Is it the Jesus of the Bible? as he has revealed himself to us in the infallible and inerrant word of God? 
Or is it a Jesus that you've made up after your own likeness? Because if it's not the Jesus of the Bible, then you're not a Christian. You're an idolater, regardless of what you call your false god. Who you think of as Jesus, the God that you worship as Jesus, must be the one who's revealed himself to you and not one that you have made. So brothers and sisters, I urge you this morning, do not be idolaters. Does the one true and living God of the Bible have your utmost affections and your undivided devotion? If not, repent and cry out to God to save you from idols that your heart lusts after. Worship the one true living God of the Bible alone and enjoy all of his wonderful and good gifts but enjoy them as gifts. Worship the creator, not the creation. So Paul mentions that the Israelites committed idolatry. Secondly, verse 8, Paul goes on, second sin, and he says, neither let us commit fornication. This could be translated sexual immorality, pornania, as some of them committed. This is certainly not the first time that Paul has confronted the Corinthians about sexual sin. And, and you know, I've, I've had people remark that, that, that'll that say, you deal with sexual sin a lot in your preaching. You know that in the last two years, I've never not once preached a special topical sermon on the issue of sexual morality. But every time that it's come up in the pulpit ministry, it's been because it's come up in the text. Right. It's not that we as a church emphasize this, it's that God emphasizes this. Right. In chapter 5, he rebuked them because they had a church member who was living in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. In chapter 6, he told them that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. In chapter 7, Paul devoted, God devoted, 40 verses to dealing with marriage and intimacy and relationships. 40 verses. This was a big deal in the Corinthian church. And, and that's one of the reasons why it makes this list of four sins. There are few things in all of the word of God about which God is more clear than the issue of sexual sin. And yet there are a few things that plague the church as does the issue of sexual morality. I'm afraid that Satan has us right where he wants us on this issue. We have become so desynthesized to this issue that we're unable to see just how bad this epidemic is. And part of the proof of that is thinking, wow, we sure do emphasize this a lot. And I'm not talking about the world, by the way. I'm talking about the church. Paul's talking to the church. Paul was not surprised that the city of Corinth was immoral. We're not surprised that the world is immoral. But what should convict our souls is that oftentimes the church doesn't look much different than the world. Perhaps the greatest cause of this dilemma are pastors who refuse to preach what the Bible says about sexual morality. In 2019, then-president of the SBC, J.D. Greer, said, Well, it appears that God seems to whisper about sexual sin. I don't know what Bible he's reading. When the church abandons the standard of morality that God gives in his word, all we're left with is an Americanized, culturally conservative ethic. When we abandon the biblical standard and exchange it for cultural conservatism, we move the goalposts. That's what we've done on this issue as a church, is we've just moved the goalposts. If you've studied any philosophy, you might know what the Hegelian dialectic is. You have a synthesis, or you have a, you have a thesis, and you have a 
antithesis, and then you have a synthesis in the middle. And we have looked at what God has said, and then we've looked at what the world somewhat approves of, which is changing every day, and then we fall somewhere in the middle and pat ourselves on the back. And we think we're standing for righteousness when we're actually encouraging and endorsing all sorts of immorality that God hates. Here's what you must understand. It's not just homosexuality that offends God. It's not just the issue of same-sex marriage that offends God. It's not just the transgenderism and all of that nonsense that offends God. God hates our heterosexual sin. And when you abandon God's standard for the cultural standard, you create professing Christians who think things like this. Well, I may be sleeping with my girlfriend, but at least I'm not a homosexual. Well, I may be cheating on my husband, but at least, at least I know it's wrong for a man to compete in women's college sports. Whoop-de-doo-da-day. The only solution is an unapologetic, uncompromising return to the Word of God alone as our sole authority. Not what some Republican politician said about it. Not what Tucker Carlson said about it or what Ben Shapiro said about it. What God said about it. We need what God said about it. But because we've abandoned what God said, heinous sins that God hates have become normalized. They're normal. Sexual immorality doesn't shock us. We have lost our sensitivity. And because we've lost our sensitivity towards sin, here's the real indictment. Sin doesn't shock us, but God's word does. The sad reality is that many professing Christians are more offended by what God says about sexual sin than they are about sexual sin. Anytime some pastor gets on the news and starts apologizing for Leviticus. Well, when you see how God deals with sexual sin, is your natural reaction to say, wow, God, that's harsh. This is the reality that we live in. On a scale of one to ten, If one is the most pure and holy standard of God's word and ten is the most debauched and perverse sexual immorality that could be committed, we live our daily lives as Americans in the 21st century somewhere around a three or a four. I'm just talking about going to the grocery store. If you're a godly man, and I can speak for godly men If you're a godly man, you cannot go to the mall in Clarksville and walk from one end to the other without having to constantly tell yourself, look away. Look away. Because you're living somewhere between a three and a four, just every day. You you can't go to to Tractor Supply and buy a bag of dog food without seeing some half-naked woman on some advertisement in the store. That's, That's the culture that we live in. And because we... It's normal to us. It's normalized to us when we do see something that's a 9 or a 10. It doesn't shock us. It's not that big of a jump. But we need to realize that our goal as Christians is not to bring people from a 9 or a 10 back to a 3 or a 4. It's to conform our minds and to conform our souls to God's standard. Amen. Therefore, the first step to recovering a view of sexual immorality is realizing how desensitized we've become and repenting of our unbiblical views that have been formed by the world and not by the word. In verse 8, Paul exemplifies everything that I've just said to you. Because Paul is writing to a church in a culture that was unimaginably perverse. Far worse than where we're at today. And Paul did not give them the excuse of, well, I know that your society just is always putting this before you and it's totally understandable that... No, Paul says, you must be holy. You must not conform to the culture around you. You must do whatever it takes to purify yourself. And why? Why? 
Not so that you can say, well, look, we've accomplished something and look how good we are. It's because you won't experience the joy of God if you cave in to the pressures of the perverse culture around you. Amen. Paul said to the same church in his second epistle, which is really his fourth epistle. I can give you that history lesson later. But he said to the same church, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, he says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy that I might present you to Christ as a chaste virgin. I want to give you to Christ. I want you to have a relationship with Him. I want His power to be present in your assembly. I want His power to be present in your preaching and in the way you live your life and in your daily communion and in the joy that you have. And if you go in the way of the world and you chase after their sins, you won't have that. You won't have it. You'll die in the wilderness. Paul is writing to this church in this culture and he confronts sexual sin with a biblical text that few pastors would ever dare to preach from. Look at verse 8. He says, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. What event is Paul referring to? Don't cheat if you have a Bible with cross-references. Does anybody know what event Paul is referring to? Paul could have cited... A number of passages from the Old Testament to illustrate this sin, but he chose a passage in Numbers 25. I want everybody to turn there. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians 10. Turn to Numbers 25, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book of the Bible, chapter 25. And if, if, if that stresses you out, then be thankful because at first I was thinking of taking you to every single text that Paul references. But this is the only one I want us to really focus in on. Numbers 25. Israel's in the wilderness. Okay, This is part of their wilderness journey. Look at verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim. And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So they're violating several commands there. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. Do you see how sexual immorality and idolatry always go hand in hand? Always go hand in hand? This is why God is very clear in the New Testament that believers are not to enter into relationships with unbelievers because one of you will compromise and it will always be the believer. Always. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So they begin to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they're not bringing them to church. No, they're, they're then participating in their idolatry. You cannot worship God if you are living in unrepentant sexual sin. And some of you know all too well the feeling that I'm talking about. You know what it feels like to sin on Saturday night and try to come to church and worship God on Sunday. You know what it's like to put perverse images before your eyes and then a few hours later try to turn around and come and worship the risen living God. You can't do it. Not if you're a Christian. If you're lost, no problem. If you're a, God, if you're a child of God, you know that conviction that brings on, unlike few other things. Thank God for that conviction, by the way. Amen. Amen. Conviction is there to help you, to save you. But the longer you suppress that conviction and the longer you hold on to your sin, the more miserable your worship becomes until you just quit altogether. Numbers 25, verse 3, And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Verse 4, And the Lord said unto Moses, Here's God's response to this. This is what I'm saying. Few pastors would ever preach this text to deal with this issue of sexual sin. And many Christians would be more offended by what God is going to do in Numbers 25 than they are about the sin itself. Verse 4, and the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. 
And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. God said, Moses, I want you to take every one of the Israelites who were engaged in this sin, and I want you to hang them. And by the way, Moses, I want you to do it in the sun, in the broad daylight, so that the rest of the congregation can see it and can know just what I think about this sin. You want to know how desensitized you are to sin? What's your reaction to that? I mean, if you read that and you're thinking, No! You're desynthesized. And, and if you're repulsed by verses 4 and 5, you really won't be able to handle verses 6 through 11. Verse 6, And behold, one of the children came, one of the children of Israel came, and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel. What's he doing there? He's flaunting his sin. He's flaunting his sin. The sins you tolerate in secret will eventually be flaunted openly once you have the opportunity. And so this guy is flaunting his sin. He knows what he's doing is sinful. He knows that God commanded them not to intermarry with the pagan nations around them. Moreover, he knows that whether it's an Israelite or anyone else, he is forbidden from having sexual relationships with someone that's not his wife. And what does he do? He takes this Midianitish woman and he parades her through the camp. Parades his sin in the church. At the end of verse 6 it says, he does this in the sight of the congregation of the children of Israel. Here's perhaps something encouraging. Who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Thank God that there were at least some people who understood how heinous this sin was. Weeping. When is the last time you've seen the church weep over sin in the church? We spend more time weeping about saints who are going to heaven than we do weeping to keep sinners out of hell. Amen. Verse 7, And when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose up from among the congregation and he took a javelin, that's a spear. He took it in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phineas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, say, behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace. You say, well, surely this doesn't happen in the church. I mean, this is just one of those Old Testament stories that has no application to us whatsoever. Well, number one, Paul applies it to the Corinthian church. This doesn't happen in the church. Right, right. Because never has there ever been two church members that have ever behaved indecently in public. Never have there been two church members on social media half-dressed, hands all over each other. That never happens in the church, right? That's what, that's what these guys want us to believe when they say God whispers about sexual sin. Again, the thing that should shock us is not that this happens among people who profess to be Christians, but that these same people will then show up Sunday morning ready to worship and no one bats an eye. And if a dear saint in the church has the courage to suggest maybe someone ought to say something to them, well, they'll very be quickly be told that they're a legalist. They're a fuddy-duddy. Mm-hmm. Mind your own business. Judge not, lest you be judged. Mm-hmm. Amen. How does God reply? God says, well done, Phineas. That's God's perspective on this situation. What's yours? This did happen in the Old Testament. And the relationship between church and state was completely different in the Old Testament. 
But do not think that God's moral standard on sexual immorality or idolatry has changed one bit. How do we know that God still feels this way in the New Testament? Because it was in the New Testament that he sent his son to die on the cross so that the sexually immoral and the idolaters could be saved. God told Moses to hang the fornicators in Israel. And today, we have Christians that wonder, should we really exercise church discipline against two members who are engaging in sin? Isn't that a little harsh? God commended Phineas for putting two flagrant adulterers to death. And today we have Christians who will cuss the pastor and leave the church because he suggested that leggings and a crop top might not be the most modest thing to wear in public. Don't play with this stuff. And it often originates with very subtle abuses of Christian liberty. Don't play with this stuff. Jesus died on the cross to save his people from sexual sins. And you will not get to heaven and have God say, you know, your problem was you just guarded your purity a little too closely. You went too far to ensure faithfulness to your wife. God's not going to say that to you. I'm not, I'm not preaching hard against this stuff because I'm angry with you. I'm doing it because I love you. Right. Because I don't want to see anyone else in our church be destroyed by this sin. Amen. And I'm willing to take the heat. I'm willing to be called a legalist or an extremist, or a cult leader, before I'm willing to pastor a church where sexual sin is tolerated. Amen. And that's what you're called, by the way. So you know. Here in the Bible Belt, if you say two people that aren't married ought not sleep together, you're a cult leader. Amen. Well, maybe you don't have a Midianitish concubine. Maybe you don't. I, I hope you don't. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I have not committed that sin. And hopefully you haven't been unfaithful to your spouse. Does that mean that you're immune from this exhortation? We live in a day where digital concubines abound. Mm -hmm. And we live in a day when men and women, because this is not just a male problem. And by the way, it's not just a young people problem. Not at all. I don't want anybody to feel singled out at all. We live in a day in which we can commit gross sexual immorality from the convenience of our own home with nothing more than a cell phone. If you're regularly viewing pornographic material, whether it's images, videos, or text, do not think that all is well between you and God. Amen. It's not. You have a major problem in your spiritual life. Major problem. And you will never experience the fullness of God's joy. And you will die in the wilderness. And do not think that you will ever find freedom from this sin through your own strength. You won't. How many times have you told yourself, that's it, I'm never doing it again. And then you return like a dog to its vomit. Only the power of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and in almost all cases, counsel and accountability will free you from this sin. One of my dearest friends was a member of a church with him. I looked up to him. I thought he was just such a godly role model. By the way, I still think that about him. I'll give you the conclusion of the story at the beginning. And I remember a day in which the pastor of our church said at the end of the service, he said, I'd like all the men of the church to meet me in my office because this man has something that he'd like to say to all the men of the church. And after the service was over, we all went to the pastor's office and we were standing in there and Pastor Rass walks in and he says, all right, so-and-so has something he'd like to say to you men. And I watched as my friend began to well up with tears and he began to confess to all the men of the church that he's been struggling with a problem with pornography. And he requested that all of the men of the church would pray for him 
and would help him and would hold him accountable. You think I thought less of him that day? I thought, I knew he was spiritual before. But have that kind of godly maturity to see his need and to come and to seek counsel through that counsel and through prayer and through work, he received victory over it and is happily married. Here's the other lie that you don't need to believe. Well, all men struggle with it. No, they don't. No, they don't. All women struggle with it. No, they don't. Because there's not a sin that Jesus died for that he cannot give you the grace to overcome. Christ can free you from the bondage of sexual sin. Any and all forms of it. Praise God that he saves adulterers and he saves fornicators and he saves homosexuals and he saves pornographers. Committing sexual sin is not what gets you disciplined out of a church. It's not what, it's not. Living in it openly with no willingness to repent is what manifests that you don't know the Lord and don't need to be a member of his church. And if you go on in that unrepentance, you will not go to heaven when you die. I I want to give no assurance to anyone here today that's living in unrepentant, ongoing sin. There's a problem between you and God that needs to be solved. Your sin will take you to hell. The sin of idolatry will take you to hell. Sexual morality will take you to hell. My prayer for you is that you will not see the Bible as an abstract, detached book, but that you will see it as intimately practical in all areas of your life. It is your sustenance as a Christian. You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And there's not one area of your life over which God is not Lord and over which he does not give you the directives to live in a way that pleases him. God does not forbid idolatry and immorality to make you miserable. He forbids it so that you can experience true joy in Him. In Him. A doctor does not enjoy having to go in and tell a patient you're terminally ill and unless you make some serious changes to your lifestyle, you're going to die. You need treatment and you need change or you're going to die. But yet you have to hear it. As painful as it might be, you have to hear it. If there's sin in your life, you have to hear these things. You have to hear what God says. He forbids these things because they they don't bring a deep and abiding and lasting pleasure. The call of the Bible is not come and be holy and hate your life. If you hate holiness, you don't know God. The call of the Bible is come and be holy because that is the way to have fellowship and communion and joy in the Lord. Titus 2 verses 13 through 14. That's why Jesus died. The Bible says our great God and Savior who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. What does that sound like? It sounds like what God was trying to do with the nation of Israel and we see what happened to them and now he's doing it with you. Don't die in the wilderness. Jesus died to purify you, to make you holy, so that you could be his. You could be like him and with him forever. A joy that comes from communion with God that is so intense and so glorious that it causes you to have a holy hatred for the things that hinder it. You need to see your your sins as the great enemy of your joy in the Lord. And you need to see that that God is not your enemy. God is the one who who will give you the grace to overcome that great enemy. When you see that your sins are what keeps you from, from fullness of joy in God, you will begin to thank God for loving rebukes and reproofs. You will realize that, that He sent His Son to die so that you can experience joy in Him and be freed from the bondage of your sins. Because He wants to give you that which is ultimately good. He wants to give you Himself. But in order to give you Himself, He will first take away your sins. 
And there's coming a day, brothers and sisters. Let's end. I want to end this in a way that encourages you. There's coming a day in which if you do know him, all of your sins will forever and finally be taken away. May God give us a love for him. And may he give us a holy hatred for our sins. And may he, through the blood of Christ, the power of the Spirit, and the preaching of his word, purify us as his own special Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. And not only for your word, but for the power of the Spirit to apply it to my heart. I know that Christianity is based upon the word and and sometimes, sometimes I don't know quite how to accurately articulate some of these thoughts. But there's some things, such as the joy of the Lord, and such as a hatred for sin, that's just hard to explain. And I feel like I'm very inadequate at explaining it. But once you see it, once you experience that joy that comes from knowing you in an intimate and deep way, it just clicks, just clicks. I pray that it clicks for some people today. Father, I pray that we have a deeper communion with you as a church. That sin is rooted out of our lives. That we're honest with one another. I pray that if there's someone here that's struggling with sin, they seek counsel, accountability, and help. And they don't go on living in misery because of how their sins have ravaged their lives. And as long as they go on in unrepentance, Father, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you make them miserable. May they get no sleep. May they get no rest. May they find no comfort until they find it in you alone. May Christ be lifted up. May the gospel go forth. May sinners be saved. May saints be encouraged. May we be a church where the truth of God is proclaimed. Christ is loved and adored world throughout end, until you return. Give us grace to endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.